Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit and thank you for joining me. Over the past 19 years, we've had uh, a lot of work being done by legislators. Um, that has involved the tightening of laws related to freedoms and liberties across the Western world. That's in part because of the fear that had been inspired by incidents such as the, the attacks on in the United States on September 11, where four aircraft were hijacked, three of them directly hit targets, and one of them uh, one of them uh, crashed into the ground following intervention by passengers. That, of course, was an attack mounted by mounted by Al Qaeda. Since September 11, 2001, we have had multiple changes to laws. And each one has restricted freedom and liberty to some degree. How has that impacted Australia over a period of time? Well, one of the few people who can actually talk about that authoritatively is my guest for this podcast, Bernard Keane, who writes for Crikey. Bernard's watched the scene very, very closely, and he's observed a lot of things that ought to be of concern to people, even if they regard matters of law, uh, legal changes has been critical. Bernard, thank you for joining me. G'day, good to be with you. Now, where did you first sort of get your start? Some people don't know where, you, where you've come from. They recognise you with the name they see in Crikey or they've seen you on, on programmes like Janine Perrett's uh, Friday show on Sky over a period of time. Um, what's the yellow post-it note version of your career? Uh, well, I spent about 15 years in the public service in the Department of Transport and then the Department of um, uh, Communications. Transport, of course, went through a number of, of iterations in that time, as it has since continued to do. Um, but if I wanted to summarise the areas I worked on broadly, well, when it was in communications, it was mainly broadcasting. Uh, and media ownership laws, a bit of ABC and SBS, and in transport, well, a bit of everything really, but um, worked quite a bit on land transport policy and also um, uh, did a bit of coordination, which is one of those sort of peculiarly bureaucratic sort of roles that meant I um, I got a bit of this and a bit of that across the entire portfolio. So, um, uh, yes, I got to, got to see how the machine operates from the inside if you like, before specialising a bit more in in media um, issues in my time in um, in communications, and after that, I went and worked for uh, went from work for for Crikey at their invitation, and um, as they say in the classics, haven't looked back since. So um, that's the that's the <laughs> well, positive history. Monitored, yeah, I monitored your work for a long period of time. It's been it is consistently interesting and. Uh, the experience in the public sector um, definitely shows, given some of the insight you're able to bring to bear. You've seen, in your roles, you've seen the way in which um, laws can be amended you know, to allow for more freedom and less freedom over a period of time. Uh, you focused on this area of Sort of security, communications, and restrictions. What drew you to it at the very beginning of the point where you started writing about this stuff? 
well, I've always had a particular interest in issues around the powers of government in relation vis-a-vis -vis individuals. Uh, and of course, that's mm -hmm. a balance that has remorselessly shifted in the favour of governments um, over the course of this century so far. Um, but I guess I was particularly taken by an article by two uh, academics, Muller and Stewart. Um, um, uh, Muller, I think, is at, used to be at the University of Newcastle here in Australia. Uh, another, is, uh, uh, another is based in the US. What they did was they went and did a basically a cost-benefit analysis of the war on terror. Um, they went and costed up all of the money that had been spent in the United States after 9-11 in relation to uh, the, uh, uh, the extension of security across different areas, um, not including the war on Iraq, by the way, not including military ventures, just strictly talking about um, the, level of, uh, the level of security and police-related spending in the United States itself, in the continental United States, as I, as I like to say uh, in the movies. And came to a very interesting conclusion, which is that um, uh, all on, on, as a result of all that spending, uh, America's security agencies would have had to have been thwarting at least a couple of 9-11 type events per year to even come close to justifying that level of spending on any sort of economic basis. And that was, that was a nice little introduction to understanding the extent to which uh, the response to terrorism, both in terms of uh, lawmaking and in terms of you know, actual expenditure, is grossly out of proportion to uh, its actual its actual costs and um, uh, and impacts. Um, and to sort of get a sense of that, it's probably useful for those of us who are able to to go back to the 1970s and recall that in the 1970s and the 1980s, well, terror, terrorism was very much firmly part of our, our lives. Um, you know, if you lived in the UK, the IRA was a ever-present part of, of, uh, of your life. They came very close to killing Margaret Thatcher, I think it was in 1986. Europe was a hotbed of terrorism back then, usually left-wing terrorism, some right-wing terrorism as well. Um, the Middle East was a hotbed of um, nationalist uh, and Palestinian secularist terrorism. You know, there was an awful lot of terrorism. Terrorism was a regularly used tool of, uh, uh, of, uh, of political movements and it inflicted a lot of casualties. And yet, for some reason, the Western world was able to get through that period um, uh, without massively eroding their own civil liberties. They were able to handle the threat posed by terrorism back then without massive reductions in civil liberties, without purging uh, their, uh, their court systems and the most basic protections, uh, and without an awful lot of security expenditure uh, on the home front. Some, but not large amounts. And that's, a, um, that, that's, a, that's an outcome that stands in very dire contrast to what we've managed over the last 20 years, which is an extraordinary expenditure of money, an extraordinary erosion of our liberties, um, all to actually literally accomplish nothing other than to make uh, major terrorist groups, by the admission of our own security agencies, 
even larger than they were 20 years ago. I mean, that was the statement of uh, you know, the head of ASIO last year that um, the terrorist Islamic terrorism threat was as was more dangerous than ever. I mean, after 20 years of the war on terror, remorseless crackdowns on our basic freedoms and vast amounts of expenditure at home and abroad, things are, at least in the eyes of uh, the people who are charged with dealing with such things, worse than ever. So that gives you an indication of why, as a public policy failure, terrorism really is utterly fascinating because it is uh, probably the most spectacular public policy failure of the last 30 or 40 years. And it spreads across jurisdictions, which is really, really extraordinary. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the US alone, uh, before we get to some of the work you've done on Australia, you've had um, uh, the Bush, um, George, you know, George Bush Mark II, uh, and you know, Barack Obama both sequentially you know, tried to shut down terrorism in the Middle East, but failing to do, but they completely failed to do that in Iraq, and that simulated a further insurgency and a further development, which resulted in ISIS. So you, yeah, one domino after another has fallen in the Middle East, and you scratch your head and you wonder why is it that people don't read the cultural play over there better um, than they than they ought of the sophisticated security. Apparatus and well, that, that that depends on whether you think the actual goal is to win the war on terror uh, or whether they have a, another goal. Maybe the goal is not necessarily to win the war on terror. Maybe it's to keep the war on terror going. I mean, that is one, I think, very rational explanation for US policymaking over the last 20 years because US policy seems to have been an embrace of the idea that uh, it would be a good idea to try and prompt the creation of entire new generations of terrorists um, uh, through not merely major military interventions as per uh, Iraq and, of course, the, the consequences of that, um, but in, uh, you know, in, for example, drone strikes, which are, in as, as a number of US authoritative US military figures have observed, including those who have actually commanded uh, forces in that particular theatre, um, uh, when it comes to areas like Afghanistan, an absolutely wonderful way of creating new enemies in the United States um, to uh, incinerate dozens of people in a um, you know in a drone strike is um, um, you know a very successful way of creating entirely new generations of terrorists deeply embittered towards the West and the United States in particular, and quite happy to join up with anyone who's um, happy to. Um, uh, to uh, give them an opportunity to gain revenge. So, um, the 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 outcome of Western policy in relation to terrorism has been so bad that I think it's a legitimate question as to whether the policy goal has actually been to end the war on terror or whether it's always been simply to keep a state of conflict continuing, which a enables greater uh, government. Uh, uh, control of populations and B, of course, generates a lovely income stream for um, major defence manufacturers who produce the, um, the weapons that are used in major military interventions and in low-level conflict um, uh, processes like drone strikes. 
the drone strikes in their own right I mean, we, we are, a, are a curious instrument. Uh, for those listening to the podcast, um, I'll just refer them to a documentary called Spy Masters, CIA in the, CIA in the Crosshairs, which explores this issue really, really well. I mean, the, the drone strikes themselves are an act of terror. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I, mean, I mean, and if you remember... Uh, they're an act of terror toward um, the populations that they're primarily targeted at, which are uh, people in countries such as Yemen uh, and Afghanistan yep. and Pakistan. But bear in mind, they've also been used to kill uh, US citizens. Um, uh, there is a 16-year-old boy, um, Abdul Rukman um, Al-Awlaki, who was incinerated in a US drone strike in Yemen um, uh, under Barack Obama who was entirely innocent uh, and doing nothing more than looking for his own father, who had himself been killed in a drone strike uh, earlier. So it's not merely foreigners. It's not merely um, yeah. the easily disposed of and easily dismissed uh, uh, in-country victims of drone strikes that, uh, that end up dying as a result. It's, um, uh, it's Americans as well. Yeah, it, but you, when I, I've started talking about uh, terrorism is sort of the, the acts of political violence because they can be committed by a state or they can be committed by an org uh, a so-called cell or an organisation. Irrespective of, irrespective of who it is, Bernard, it strikes me that we need to be talking about them as acts of political violence because that's what they are. Mm, and that is their intention. Well, the, we, their, their intention is not merely to take out, to use the... Uh, an actual, a particular target, it is to create terror. Uh, it's a very deliberate ploy, exactly along the lines of uh, you know the thinking that is employed by uh, the people that we're pursuing. Absolutely, you've you've also got the uh, you, on the issue of uh, drone strikes. The US has killed its own citizens. Now, it, it, admittedly, uh, Admiral Lackey was a key. Uh, propagandist, but the point made by people in, involved in dealing with these issues is that this is one way in which the US takes out its own citizens, irrespective of whether you know where they sit on the spectrum. Well, exactly, and you know, a Western, a Western democratic state with the rule of law should not be in the business of executing its own citizens. Without, um, without any sort of due process. And that man, as bad as he may have been, was certainly not given any due process or arrested or, or put on trial. Uh, he was uh, killed in a drone strike. And then, uh, you know, as I said, his own son uh, was killed uh, subsequently, despite yeah, having yeah. nothing to do with uh, nothing to do with it. So, um, you know, the categorization of, um, of drone strikes as, a, as a, a weapon of terror, if you like, is, is very accurate. Yeah, I mean, there are those who say, well, it's an essential tool to uh, to prevent uh, violence on US soil or violence against US interests. And that's one argument that, that is run. But then you flip it on its... To, then you look at the nature of the action and you've got to look at it through the eyes of all people that might be affected by it. Um, how does this translate... We mentioned due process and justice... How does this translate into the uh, Australian environment, Bernard, where we've, we've now got 
a significant number of cases of security, national security being used as a rationale for uh, going down the rabbit hole against journalists to start with, and then also mounting trials against uh, whistleblowers, and in some cases these trials are secret. Uh, can we take the first one that I mentioned being you know, journalists like Annika Smithhurst and and the guys from the ABC, um, Clark and Oakes? Um, what's your perspective on the way in which legal force has been used in those cases? Well, that's, this is an inevitable, an inevitable consequence of... Uh, of those sorts of laws. I mean, it is a rule of thumb of the extension of uh, of security powers that the more draconian they get, the more likely they are to be used uh, beyond the purposes for which uh, it's been argued that they're actually needed. Now, the you know, the classic case to, to to jump over to a different topic is. Uh, is data retention, which we were originally assured was only for use against the worst of the worst, i.e. terrorism, organised crime, um, and uh, you know, child abuse. A couple of years after the data retention laws have actually been in place, there's a bit of a review underway by the Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security, and they've discovered that, of course, those laws are being used for all sorts of quote-unquote crimes, right down to dumping of rubbish. Uh, and parking infringements by a wide variety of organisations, despite the assurances that um, that uh, uh, they would only ever be used by a relatively limited number of security agencies. So we've gone from small number of agencies using it for the worst of the worst to open slather virtually in relation to data retention. That's that's the classic example of how there will always be mission creep um, around these sorts of laws. Um, and the you know the fact that we have data retention means it's you know now trivially easy for uh, the Australian Federal Police to pursue whistleblowers and journalists for possible breaches of uh, of the various secrecy provisions around surrounding national security information, um, because there's so much more data for them to sort through and to use as a basis for pursuing journalists and whistleblowers. So the whole environment of for journalists reporting on national security issues has become much more fraught because there are now more laws restricting the use of, of national security information and there are more laws about uh, making it easier for the authorities to come after um, uh, journalists and their sources in order to find out who has leaked to whom. So, you know, it, it is, a, it is an, an inevitability that... Uh, Whenever you have these sorts of extensions of laws, they a will be justified by the invocation of the most serious of crimes: terrorism, organised crime, child abuse. But inevitably, be end up being used for much more mundane crimes and used to protect the interests of the government of the day. Because another rule of thumb in all this is that whenever there's a national security leak. If it's a leak by the government itself in the government's own interests, it is never investigated. Um, and if it is a leak against the government that is against the government's interest, then it is always investigated with a considerable amount of resources. So these laws will always be abused. There will always be mission creep. And um, uh, no amount of assurances 
by governments ahead of the fact um, uh, will ever change that. The important thing to realize also is that there have been basically two periods of extensions of security laws. The first were from around, there were a couple in the initial flurry after 9-11, but really from 2004 when the Howard government began putting through um, quite serious and uh, quite draconian anti-terror legislation that we were assured at the time was necessary to fight the war on terror. Then about 10 years later, in 2014, the Abbott government began saying, well, in effect, what we had from the Howard years was nowhere near enough, that we needed a whole slew of new laws on top of those already draconian laws, uh, far beyond what we were assured by the Howard government was sufficient to fight the war on terror. Uh, that needed to be put in place and put in place quickly in order for us to be able to address the threat posed by Islamic State. Um, and it's never really been satisfactorily explained why the Howard era laws, which were correctly seen as extraordinarily draconian, somehow were grossly insufficient by 2014 uh, when it came to addressing the, the threat posed by Islamic State. Because despite the fact that people like George Brandis, uh, the then Attorney General, and Julie Bishop, the then Foreign Minister, declared that the threat of Islamic State was, quote unquote, existential, uh, that, of course, was a laughable uh, overstatement, indeed, uh, hysterical and laughable. The idea that Islamic State, which it more or less peaked with some military uh, successes in Syria and Iraq and some videos of uh, uh, horrific and gruesome decapitations, posed some sort of existential threat to Western states, uh, was nonsensical, unless, of course, George Brandis and Julie Bishop didn't actually understand what existential meant. Um, that um, I think the last time we had an existential threat was when the Soviet Union existed and the planet could have gone up in a nuclear holocaust uh, within a matter of days. Um, that was the last existential threat. The threat, the fact that uh, Islamic State, um, the claim that Islamic State represented some sort of existential threat, uh, uh, simply uh, was nonsensical. So we never really had an explanation of why that second set of laws passed by the Abbott government was so much necessary uh, that uh, you know the radically draconian laws of the Howard era designed to fight the first iteration Al Qaeda, which was you know as you said in your introduction, flying building uh, flying planes into buildings and causing mass casualty events, um, uh, you know has never satisfactorily been addressed. The uh, the the issue of um, calling something an existential threat also brings something else to mind, Bernard, which is how do you define an exit? How do you define um, an existential threat? Firstly, but also a question of tone. A terrorist organisation may be a threat, but it's never really necessary to hype it up to the point that some of the some of the rhetoric seems to. Uh, get hyped up to from where I sit. Well, the if what you're doing, in fact, is you're doing advertising for that terrorist group. You are indicating to uh, people who may end up being influenced to uh, join or in some way work with that group that that group is crucial. It's the one that's posing the existential threat to Western society. I mean, if you were in a position to be radicalised or you've already been radicalised, what better description, what better advertising could you hope for 
than to have an organization advertised as representing an existential threat to the West. If you hate the West, if you want to see it brought down, then um, why wouldn't you go straight for the organization that has been labeled by Western politicians themselves as an existential threat? So I imagine when people like Julie Bishop and George Brandis were saying, making those sort of absurd claims, um, uh, Islamic State was, uh, was delighted. I mean, it's just fantastic advertising uh, for a group well, that obviously you... depended on heavily on um, attracting radicalized extremists to join its ranks. Flip, flip it on the flip, flip it on its on on the top of its head, if you like. Once you once you say that in a Western jurisdiction, it then makes its way into propaganda material, uh, which we've seen reported from time to time. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is this is this is, and look, there is there you know for for there there is if you like a marketplace of ideas when it comes to extremism. And there is certainly a marketplace of different groups. Um, and if you're able to advertise that you are successful, which obviously Islamic State was for a time, with its military victories, um, and of course with its um, with the terrific videos, uh, you know, it showed an enormous skill at selling itself to extremists. And we have thousands and thousands of Western extremists headed over to uh, headed over to uh, to Syria. Uh, to join Islamic State. So we know that it was very successful at marketing itself. How much better marketing, of course, would it have if uh, Western politicians themselves, in effect, declared that this was, you know, when it came to terrorist groups, the acme of terrorist groups in terms of the threat that it posed uh, to the West. So, uh, as I said, I imagine that that the likes of uh, Islamic State were absolutely over the moon when they had Western politicians declaring that they represented some sort of truly profound, all-encompassing threat to uh, Western nations, which, of course, they never did. The uh, other thing you've worked on, this is the, I guess, the the, the deeper and more concerning element of of the writing you've done, is the way in which court prosecutions have unfolded using the various laws and amendments that we've spoken about. You've got the Colliery and uh, Witness K matter uh, at the moment. Could you briefly explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the case what it what that involves? Um, so in 2004, Australia um, illegally uh, uh, placed surveillance devices in the Cabinet Room of the Timor-Leste government, newly formed Timor-Leste government. This is a a country that that, that hadn't existed five minutes before. Um, That was designed to provide intelligence about uh, Timor-Leste's negotiating position position in relation to access to uh, uh, petroleum and other resources uh, beneath the Timor Sea. Uh, The history of of these arrangements goes back into the the Indonesian years, of course, and uh, and previous. uh, previous deals which were voided by by Timor-Leste's independence. Now, that bugging occurred at a time in 2004 when the war on terror was uh, at a fever pitch uh, when it came to Australia because uh, on September 9, 2004, a car bomb was detonated in Jakarta outside uh, the Australian embassy. It, no Australians were killed, but eight uh, Indonesians were killed plus uh, the perpetrator, 
So, uh, you know, this was a period when Australia uh, was really you know, in the front line in terms of potential threats to its interests uh, from terrorists. And at that exact moment, not long before, important resources, ASIS resources, Australia's Secret Intelligence Service resources, had been pulled away from counterterrorism operations in Jakarta and deployed in order to bug the Timor-Leste cabinet in order to secure uh, commercial advantages for uh, the petrochemical company Woodside. Now, that didn't come to light until uh, 2013 when a senior ASIS officer in the, in the course of a basically an industrial relations dispute with ASIS, uh, his former employer, um, uh, exposed the matter. Now, Witness K is often called a whistleblower. That's not strictly accurate. Uh, he was not blowing the whistle. He actually revealed that information as part of, as I said, uh, an industrial dispute uh, with his former employers. And the lawyer involved in that case and in a separate proceeding involving East Timor against, sorry, Timor-Leste against Australia in the International uh, Court in The Hague was Canberra lawyer Bernard Caleri, who's a, a national security lawyer of a very, uh, very great repute and very long standing. Um, and uh, the bugging of uh, Timor Leste was revealed by Witness K and Bernard Caleri in 2013. I won't go through the particular circumstances relating to that, but five years later, K and Caleri were prosecuted um, at the say so of the current Attorney General. Christian Porter for uh, revealing national security information. And that trial has yet to kick off uh, in Canberra. Um, the Crown, Christian Porter, wants that trial to proceed uh, basically in camera, using evidence that will not be publicly revealed, and indeed evidence that not even Bernard Caleri and his defence team will be permitted uh, to see. Um, whether they, whether Christian Porter can actually do this is currently being, currently the subject of preliminary hearings uh, uh, in Canberra. So whether he's successful with that, we don't know. Um, we will find out in some course. Bear in mind that's all separate from what the Department of, what the Director of Public Prosecutions uh, is, yeah, is doing in all this. The Director of Public Prosecutions is the body that is prosecuting Bernard Caleri and Witness K but it is Christian Porter who separately is trying to keep the trial as secret as possible uh, because of its obvious potential to embarrass um, uh, the Liberal Party and not merely the Liberal Party, but um, the ALP as well. I mean, there are aspects of this that occurred when Labor was in power uh, as well. So there are many in the political class who will be embarrassed if this trial actually goes ahead in public. And indeed, I think Bernard Caleri is quite correct when he observes that if indeed he is successful in stopping Christian Porter's application to have this trial conducted in secret, then the prosecution will very likely be dropped because of its potential to embarrass people like John Howard and Alexander Downer, uh, the two men who ordered the illegal bugging uh, in 2004. The community is uh, observing this. And there's a lot of activity that's been going on. What are the things that they need to keep in mind uh, as they watch this play out? Um, 
well, I think the key there's there's a couple of key issues. One is the fact that uh, you know this is a major trial for probably the biggest scandal in Australian politics in decades, probably going back to the dismissal. Um, uh, the Howard government directing an Australian intelligence agency to act illegally against the interests of uh, a small state that notionally we were supporting the establishment and development of, all to aid the interests of a very, very well-connected resources company, a company that pays large donations to both sides of politics and employs people from both sides of politics. You know, this is a scandal relating to the entirety of the political class. And that's why there is so much interest in keeping this uh, covered up. I mean, quite happy to use that phrase. Uh, and that's why Labor is conspicuously silent about all this. There has literally been no statement of any ministerial, shadow ministerial nature from Labor in relation to this trial. There have been a couple of backbenchers who have spoken out about it um, and kudos to them, but Labor has been conspicuously silent uh, on this issue. So this is a scandal involving the entire political class. John Howard and Alexander Downer may have been the ones who ordered the bugging, but uh, all sides of politics when they have been in government have engaged in the abuse of uh, intelligence services and war on terrorism powers for uh, the purposes of, of, uh, of commercial gain for companies uh, seen as identifying with Australia's interests. So, you know, this is, this is, this is a, you know, a scandal that's big enough for all sides of politics or, or both sides of politics uh, to be part of. Um, the other aspect to really uh, keep focused on is that um, this is a perfect case, again, of national security laws being used so that uh, the interests of the government of the day are served rather than national security. So the laws that are being used by Christian Porter to prevent uh, aspects of this trial from being made public are laws that were introduced by the Howard government in that sort of first group of anti-terror laws in, in the 2000s, designed uh, ostensibly on a basis that it would prevent terrorists who'd been charged from finding out information about how the case had been put together uh, against them. Um, now that's been turned around and is being used against Bernard Clary, um, a man who has provided enormous service to Australia, who is a great patriot. Similarly, Witness K, a man who has provided extensive service, often in very, very risky and dangerous circumstances for his country, uh, also a great patriot. Those laws are now being used against them uh, in order to uh, in order to prevent them from being able to successfully or uh, as successfully as they should be able to defend themselves. So, you know, if you want to see another case of of mission creep of the abuse of laws that we were told were only for the worst of the worst, then Christian Porter trying to keep this trial covered up uh, is another example of it. Uh, before we sort of conclude, Bernard, there's one other question that's really important, and I guess we both have a vested interest in this one, uh, as do all the journalists looking at government, period, let alone legal proceedings of the nature we're talking about. What changes in terms of news gathering for people at the moment as they contemplate the current litigious and security um, environment that we're in? Look, I think the, the big change for journalists um, 
editors and, and producers really revolves around technology. Um, the old idea that um, the government may threaten to jail a journalist if he or she doesn't reveal uh, their source, which of course we know has happened uh, uh, in, uh, in Australia, also happened in the United States. That's not really, that, I think that's, that's going to come to seem like a rather old fashioned and rather heroic fantasy. Increasingly these days, journalists don't really have much say in the whole business. They don't get asked who their sources are. They're not confronted with the dilemma of, do I reveal my source or do I go to jail? Um, they don't have any say in it. They may not even be aware that they are being investigated because under, under, uh, under certain laws passed by the Abbott government, um, it's actually, if a journalist is actually being uh, investigated in order for a source to be identified, you know, it's illegal for them to be told that that's happening. And if they do find out, it's illegal for them to tell anyone. So they may not even know that this process is underway, let alone get to you know, make some sort of threshold decision in relation to how successful it is. Um, the responsibility on journalists is vis-a-vis -vis their sources now to try to protect them as much as possible and make them as safe as possible, given the constraints that we now have in relation to uh, the extensive surveillance powers the governments have. You, you can no longer ring a journalist safely. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. If you ring a journalist, then you've already established a connection between yourself and a journalist. So, you know, whistleblowers simply cannot do that. Journalists can't do it either. Um, contact has got to be made in other ways that are less easily tracked. Um, and that means we're in a very sort of different in information environment. We're in an environment where um, journalists have to be extraordinarily careful about how they interact with sources and make sure they leave no digital trail, no telephonic trail uh, when they're interacting with them. Um, the other big change is yeah, that... Uh, sorry, Tom. The, the other big change is that um, we have a government that is increasingly quite blatant about the fact that it is prepared to use national security laws to try and spare its own embarrassment um, rather than preserving the use of national security laws for national security. Um, it's, it's, this is a government that's unashamed about, uh, about using those laws in order to try to cover up its own embarrassment. Um, uh, every bit as much and indeed far more than using them to go after terrorists. I think the, the other thing that's important for listeners to note, while we're talking about the way journalists operate, there will be sources that, that also need to be careful that they don't leave electronic trails inside their workplaces. Um, and that includes understanding how photocopiers work. Some photocopiers keep track of you know, the page numbers of documents that have been uh, that have been photocopied for some time. All that sort of stuff is thing uh, is necessary uh, for people to keep in mind because employers or government departments can then start looking at who used the photocopier, who stayed longer than normal uh, in the office. Uh, did they use their swipe card to go in or out? Did they use a swipe card on the photocopier? All that sort of tracking stuff is available. It's incredible. Oh, indeed. I mean, it's well, and that, that applies more broadly. I mean, it is, it is almost the amount of what's called digital exhaust that each of us produces each day just by living in the 21st century in a metropolitan environment is remarkable. Um, it's very hard to actually do anything these days without leaving some sort of digital trail about where you were, uh, who you were with, 
um, and what you were doing at the time. And uh, you know, again, that makes makes it much much easier for um, for um, uh, for for governments to actually effectively track people. Um, it's um, you know from 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 getting on a from getting on public transport and using a swipe card uh, on public transport to driving somewhere, and of course having your you know you uh, having uh, your uh, car registered as a on a you know on a toll road through to the you know the vast amounts of CCTV that are in place, and that's before you get to things like well you use your credit card for a particular transaction, um, uh, and so on. So you know the sheer amount of information that we all generate each day just by simply existing in modern society uh, is uh, is vast, and it's enormously difficult to move around without actually leaving some sort of some sort of trail along those lines and and uh, Journalists and sources have to be acutely aware of that uh, if they're planning on doing something that is potentially going to incur the wrath um, of governments. It's a it's a good caution to to kind of wrap things up on. Bernard, you've done a lot of writing. You don't just do you haven't just done crikey. You've written some books. Are there any books you care to highlight to listeners now that they might you know want to go off and look at? Um. Well, I think I covered. I did. A, I co-wrote a book a couple of years ago, well, several years ago now, called "A Short History of Stupid" with Helen Razor, which is at times somewhat sort of uh, light in tone, but I cover off a lot of these sort of issues that we've talked about here uh, pretty extensively, particularly around the 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 uh, illogicality and irrationality of the war on terror uh, and its apparent complete lack of success. That's something I really uh, I really explored in quite a lot of detail uh, uh, in there, um, and I touched on. I... You wrote a, you wrote a book on um, national security some time ago, didn't you? I wrote a book called wrote a novel called Surveillance, which is about uh, the psychological impulses behind the urge to surveillance, uh, which has overtaken both corporations and governments uh, in recent years, and. Um, tries to find out or tries to explore the ways in which that um, that interacts with us personally. So uh, if people want a more personal perspective on that, that's, uh, that's a direction that I'd be very happy for them to go in. Well, where can they... Uh, is surveillance still available, do you know? Uh, it's certainly available electronically, of course. Nothing ever dies electronically, but um, it's certainly still available on Amazon. And uh, we'll just point out uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was also the fact that Crikey is available for another week um, freely, and I will be highlighting that when I post the uh, post the podcast up uh, uh, online. Uh, take advantage of that. I subscribe to Crikey. I've written for Crikey, and uh, Bernard and Company do great work. Bernard, thanks for joining me. Uh, Tom, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Not a problem, and um, I'll be uh, I'll be back with the listeners uh, with other podcasts reasonably soon as well.